Hey guys, you're listening to episode 70 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Heather Tuninga, founder of 1010 Strategies. there. Welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking with Heather Tuninga, founder of 1010 Strategies. Heather had an extensive background in the philanthropy world, including working at the Gates Foundation prior to launching 1010 Strategies, where she helps families and businesses find joy and impact in their giving. She had many stories to share about the joy she's seen others experience by stepping into generosity, and you won't want to miss all she had to share. Before we get started, I just want to remind you about our finish line sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money, while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The Sprint Guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com slash sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. So check it out and get a group together today. With that, let's get to the interview. Okay, we're here with Heather Tuninga. Heather, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Cody. Thanks, Keelan. It's fun to be together. Can you get us started? Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, gosh. Well, I grew up in a small town in Northwest Washington, a place called Port Angeles. It's right nestled between the Olympic Mountains and the Straits of Juan de Fuca. So it's this beautiful small town to grow up in. Grew up in a great family. I have an older brother, younger sister, and it's just a great start to life. My dad was the city manager of our town, of our small town. And my maiden name is Floodstrom, which is a pretty tricky name and uncommon. And so we were the only floodstorms in town, except for like my dad's aunt and uncle or something. And so everyone knew who we were, even though I didn't know who everyone else was because of my dad's job. And so it's kind of an interesting space to grow up in a fishbowl. We had lots of dinner table conversations about reputation and things like that. Like we didn't get to go to the cool kid parties because there might be alcohol there and you're in high school and if I'm there, even if I'm not drinking, it's going to show up on the front page of the paper. <laughs> so that was what life was like. It didn't feel stifling, but it felt kind of important to be who we were and keep our noses clean, which was great. Went off to college, then worked for a little while, went off to grad school and really thought I would do my career in government. And the reason why is somehow I think I got born with this thing about the greater good. Like I really felt called to help the greater good. That's the best way I could describe it. And maybe because my father was this public servant and my mom volunteered all over town, but I really wanted to do something for people to help people. And as I kind of went throughout my schooling and life, I thought, well, the best way to help the greater good is to work in the government and make good public policy because that helps a lot of people. And then, you know, people's lives will be better if there's good legislators and that kind of thing. So I decided at age 14, the crazy things we decide when we're 14, (laughs) (laughs) 
that I was going to run for office. And so then I had to decide what office and local or state or federal. Ultimately, I decided I was going to run for the state Senate and that I wanted to become the lieutenant governor. Not because I cared about ever being governor, but because I wanted to run the show in the Senate. (laughs) So I did all of my schooling. I was one of those geeky kids that kind of reverse engineered, like, how do I get to lieutenant governor? And I figured out all the steps along the way to try and get there. And then I started on that path at age 14. (laughs) And so I was the nerdy kid that declared my major first day of college, political science, right? And then added economics because I wanted to be smart politician. And anyway, did grad school in public policy, worked in government along the way to get my feet wet in the various levels of government. And after grad school, worked at local government and then state, decided state government was the place I liked the best and spent five years working for the Appropriations Committee in the Washington state government. And I just loved it. I absolutely loved it. I'm a numbers geek. And so I loved being a fiscal analyst. I loved being nonpartisan staff because then you have to know all the facts about the issue and represent, not really represent both sides, but be able to speak to both sides and bring the facts so that they could make educated decisions. And I felt like we were making good public policy. But then along the way, this isn't a surprise to anyone now, but it was a surprise then to me with my stars in my eyes, I think, about helping the greater good. The partisan politics started to get in the way of good public policy. And even though I wasn't part of the partisan system, I was nonpartisan staff, I felt like I was sort of tacitly condoning it by working there. And it was happening on both sides of the aisle. It's not anybody's fault. It's part of the process, really. But I came to a real crisis point for me, turning point. I think I had my midlife crisis at age 28. (laughs) And I thought, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this. I don't know if this is helping the greater good. I don't know if I can condone this behavior that, and I kind of thought if the people of the state of Washington knew what was happening behind these doors, like they'd be mad. And I don't know if I want to be part of that. So what do I do now? And I went through a real time of upheaval, internal upheaval, thinking like for half my life at that point, from age 14 to 28, this was the goal at the top of the pyramid and I was on my way there. And then the goal at the top of the pyramid fell off. I felt a little bit lost. So I did some reading and some soul searching and a lot of prayer and a lot of talking with other people. And I had this moment where I walked into this Christian bookstore, you know, when you're like seeking answers for something and I walk into this Christian bookstore, I'm trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do with my life. And there's this book and in big font on the front, it says God's plan for your life. And I thought, (laughs) oh, I found it. (laughs) I was sort of naive enough to think like, oh, this book's for me and not just for everyone. I'm sure a million people bought that book. So the book ended up being not that awesome, but there was a scripture in there. Second Timothy 2.21 about being an instrument for noble purposes, made holy useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. And I was like, that's it. That's this description of this greater good thing that I feel that I want to do. I want to be an instrument for noble purposes in the world. That's it. I finally had words to describe this thing that I think I kind of got born with. And so then I, you know, was like, well, I don't think it's in government anymore. What am I supposed to do? How do I be an instrument for noble purposes? So 
After more conversation, prayer, talking with wise people around me, I started looking into philanthropy and thinking, man, philanthropists are doing really great work all over the world and in my community. And there's really noble things happening, really greater good things happening. Maybe I'm supposed to work in philanthropy. So I started doing what anyone does when they want a career change, talking to people. You know, I had a bazillion 30-minute coffee meetings. God bless all the people that gave me 30 minutes and had coffee. Right? Like when anybody asks you for a 30-minute coffee meeting, no matter who they are, just say yes and meet them and give that young person your best advice. And so a lot of people blessed me with that. And people that I only ever saw, some of them, for that 30 minutes. But a bunch of them, you know, I've seen at various times throughout my career. Anyway, got a lot of wisdom. And this was my thought. Oh, wow. I want to move into philanthropy. And I'm smart. And, you know, I have a master's degree from Duke. That means something. Maybe I should go work at the Gates Foundation because they hire smart people. And maybe they'll hire me. And then I could, you know, kind of cut my teeth in philanthropy with one of the biggest foundations in the world. So I looked at their website and the jobs they had posted. And I realized really fast, they would never hire me (laughs) because (laughs) I don't do any things they do. I don't know anything about infectious diseases or global development, or I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And, you know, it turns out the Gates Foundation doesn't just hire smart people and teach them about tuberculosis because they don't have to, because they can hire the smartest person in the world about tuberculosis, which is what they do. So I wrote that off, started thinking about other options and stayed working at the legislature for another 18 months until one day I had a call. And through all these different meetings I'd had through this chain of people and events that only God could orchestrate, I get a call from a guy at Starbucks corporate, actually, who I'd met with. He did government relations for them. And I helped him out with a few things at the state level. And he left me this message and he said, Heather, someone called me about something and I think it's what you want to do. And I think they need someone like you. And so if that sounds intriguing, like call me back. And I was like, that's (laughs) the weirdest, vaguest voicemail I've ever had. So I call him back. We talked about it and he said, well, I can't tell you who it is. I thought, well, that's weird too, but okay. And he's like, just send me your resume and I'll send it on. So I did that. And a week later, I got a call from the Gates Foundation of all places. And they were hiring a new position to work directly with Bill Gates Sr. Bill Gates Sr. was the only family member in-house at the time. This was early 2000s because Bill and Melinda were still at Microsoft working. And so Bill Sr. was kind of the family presence and the ambassador to the foundation and et cetera. And so they were hiring this new role to work with him. And they couldn't just advertise it because then they would get all kinds of crazies applying for that job to work with the family, right? Because it seems cool. And so they had reached out to their network and they reached out to people in DC and I'd worked in DC and different people, the white house, this crazy network of people that ended up at me. And I went in for interviews and got the job. That was a long story. Sorry, (laughs) but a fun, crazy part of the story. So I cut my teeth in philanthropy. I left the legislature 2004, cut my teeth in philanthropy at the Gates foundation, learned a ton from Bill Gates senior. He, although not a believer, I found him to be one of the most humble, gracious people I've ever met. And he taught me a lot of things kind of side by side. We would be walking places and he would ask me a question because he's trying to teach me something. He was very, he turned 80 while we were working together. So it was kind of a grandfatherly relationship a little bit. And 
really high respect for one another. We traveled the world together. He spoke all over the world, all over the country. And so we were always on a plane or in a car going somewhere. And it was a really great three and a half years. I learned a ton. I got to meet some amazing people around the world and got to learn philanthropy from, even though they were, we called ourselves at the Gates Foundation kindergartners at the time, because they'd been going like five years. It was early days. So even though they were kindergartners in philanthropy, they were smart. And so I learned a lot about strategic philanthropy. Left there after three and a half years to go run a private family foundation. That was a great experience. Worked just for one family. Started it, sunsetted it in eight years. Gave away a bunch of money. Got to introduce them to the developing world. That was really fun. Really changed their lives and their kids' lives. And that was really fun. And then as that was winding down, I always kind of wondered, like, am I supposed to hang my own shingle? Am I supposed to help more than one family? Am I supposed to do this strategic philanthropy thing for not just one family at a time. And I never felt like I had the green light on that, but I started praying about that some more as this foundation was winding down and felt like I finally got the green light from the Lord. So I started my consulting practice and I will tell you that the work I'm doing now is the best thing I've ever done. I love, love, love my work. I never feel like I need a vacation. I don't feel like I need a day off because I love what I get to do. I get to serve families and help them make an impact on the stuff they care about and get joy. And so for serving five or six or seven families or businesses at any one time, and they're getting more impact and joy in their philanthropy, which brings me joy. And it's the best thing. I don't have to have a bunch of money. I get to help other people steward their money and I'm so glad that back when I was 28, a long time ago now, that the Lord kind of took the goal off the top of the pyramid of the government, you know, like on the government track, the lieutenant governor track. I'm so glad I didn't run for office. I'm so glad that I, he drew me into philanthropy and I hope I get to do this forever and never look back. Yeah. It's so important what you're talking about there because God never really gives us a whole plan. (laughs) I feel like he only really gives us one step at a time and he asks us to trust him with the rest of that plan. And I think exactly what you're sharing about how that shift in storyline happens to many of us and often, you know, I feel kind of lost in that season. But when you look back, I mean, I'm sure that all of the training and the years of experience you had in the, on the government side had a significant impact on your experience in the philanthropy world and the work that you were doing there. And you can see in retrospect, how God was weaving it all together. And I always appreciate those kind of stories because it makes it easier to trust that God knows what he's doing when things aren't going right in the present (laughs) right now. So I think that's cool how he pulled all that together. I know that you have a heart for generosity and you have been working heavily in that space now for a long time. I'm curious how, as you were maybe in the Gates Foundation or in any of the other roles that you've had in that space, how that started to impact your own view of generosity in your heart and how God kind of stretched you in generosity alongside the families that you were working with. That's a great question, Keelan. I would say my heart for generosity started with my parents in the sense that we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but 
they were faithful in their giving to the church, which I saw every week. It's back in the church when we used to have little offering envelopes and you'd pick up your whole year's worth of envelopes at church. And then you put your money in it each week and brought it and put in the thing. We even had kids once. My dad would give us a quarter or something to put in our kids. <laughs> so they taught us to be faithful in that way, but they were always giving themselves away around the community. My dad, I don't know how many teams my dad has coached from our small town. Unbelievable. Brothers teams, sister teams, other kids teams, amazing teams. And my mom was on, you know, running the board of a local social services nonprofit or helping out of the church or she led my Girl Scout troop for I don't know how many years. And as a mom of a Girl Scout now, I realize how much sacrifice that was. They were always giving themselves away. I think there's a quote that says something like a life lived for others is a life well spent or something like that. And like that's how they lived and they had joy. And I think it was a life well spent. And so it started there. It was just kind of in our DNA as a family to be generous with what you had, your time, your, you know, attention, your love, your coaching skills, whatever it was. But then moving into the philanthropy space in 2004, I feel like I've been doing philanthropy professionally for almost 19 or over 19 years, but, and so kind of learning the strategy of generosity, it's more like the strategy of philanthropy, but I didn't get the generosity bug, I would say until 2005. So it was about a year after I joined the Gates Foundation, I went to a generous giving conference and it changed my life. And I went because I thought I was supposed to potentially go work for them. It's a long story, but I'd met Todd Harper, one of the founders and at a prayer breakfast and they were thinking about hiring a woman. This was early days of generous giving and they didn't have any women on staff. And I was like, I think this is maybe what I'm supposed to do. And I was all ready to leave the Gates Foundation and go work for them. And he's like, why don't you come check us out first before you leave your cool job. So I did and realized in that time that it wasn't because I was supposed to go work at Generous Giving, although I've thought about it a million times since. It was because God wanted me on my own generosity journey. And I think growing up, although I saw some monetary generosity, I didn't I didn't have a lot of great teaching on that in the churches I was in because churches hate to teach about money <laughs> and not all of them, but many of them. And so I just didn't have a great foundation for that. And I got it that weekend, 2005, April, 2005. It was like my next conversion, right? Remember people know like when they meet the Lord and they have their conversion. I'm like August when I was 16 years old. And then my generosity conversion, April, 2005. <laughs> and I started experiencing the joy and freedom of generosity and leaning into that, you know, and like at that conference, I decided, I just decided that year I was going to give 10%. So, you know, like I'd made this big decision for my life. I'm going to give away 10%. I felt like I was finally like achieving some sort of thing. I was getting to the tithe, but then at that conference, I felt like the Lord was saying, I want you to go more. So I went from, instead of giving 10% of my net, I gave 10% of my growth. So 10% before taxes. And I even did it retroactive back to the start. Of the year. <laughs> and I felt like I was really achieving something where I'm like, I am moving into giving. What I didn't know is that this, these years, 18 years of freedom and joy from generosity, it's just changed me forever. And now I'm a generosity evangelist because I can't get enough of it. I want more of it for everyone. When I encounter people that I think maybe aren't giving much away. I just want to be like, try it, lean in. Cause there's so much fun on the other side. So that's kind of where it started. 2005 generous giving. I've been a volunteer for generous giving ever since. And I 
the thing I got, I'll back up a little bit, but the thing I got that weekend that I didn't get before, didn't know before, was the biblical teaching about that everything I have is God's. Everything. You know, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and the world and all who live in it. I guess I'd skipped that one. That's all before <laughs> because I didn't get that. I didn't get that my money was God's. I didn't get my stuff was God's. My car is God's. My apartment was God's. Everything I have is God's. And so if he wants to use it by having someone come live with me or letting someone use my car or have me give some of my money away because it's his money anyway, it's his and I've learned over time, my friend Alan Barnhart always says, like, when we're thinking about whether to share stuff or not, like, we should ask the owner because he's the owner of all of it. And so I've learned that. And there's just a lot of freedom and joy. It's actually a lot of freedom and joy knowing that none of this stuff is mine. <laughs> he's responsible for it, too, in addition to it being his. So it's been a really incredible journey. Heather, I'm wondering, because you've mentioned strategy and you've said that you're really into the numbers, you dig into the numbers of things. How much did that play into generosity when you were starting to explore it and experience it as you were swept up in the joy of it? Were you concerned about numbers? Was that a barrier initially, or is that something you're able to use to enhance your generosity? That's a great question, Cody. I think the numbers helped push me to grow in the grace of giving. Because I'm a numbers person, I'm a goal setter. I'm also a recovering achiever. So that was all happening full on back then. And so I was, you know, that year I went, 2005, I went to 10% of gross and I was so proud. And so then the next year I thought, well, maybe I'll go up a percent. Oh yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So I went up, I went to 11%, I think. And then I went up to 12%. And then one year I felt like God said, I want you to give as much as you save this year. I am a ridiculous saver. Like I'm not a spender. I'm a saver (laughs) and it is an idol. (laughs) I'll just declare it right now and ask forgiveness. My husband calls our savings account a black hole because once it goes in there, it never comes out (laughs) (laughs) because I'm a saver. So the Lord said, I want you to give as much as you're going to save this year. And I'll tell you what that does. It makes you trust because it makes you say, okay, Lord, I'm put this in my savings account or my retirement or whatever but I'm going to give way more to you. And as much as I'm sort of caring for my own future, which is the Lord's too, turns out, I'm going to care for others by giving this money away to people that need it. And so the numbers along the way, like that was, wasn't a specific, well, it ended up being a specific number, but the numbers helped kind of push me along the way. And so Eric and I joke now that we are one percenters. We're probably one percenters in the world with income because The world is a poor place, but that's not what we mean because we don't make that kind of money. (laughs) What we mean is that we're 1% growers. So every year we grow our giving by 1% and we're just going to keep leaning into it. And it's a great metric for pushing us forward. And so it actually doesn't matter what our income is in a year. It fluctuates from time to time because of different things. We're going to grow our giving by 1%. And turns out 1% isn't very much. So it's not very hard to do it year over year over year. But then pretty soon you're up to a bigger number and it's like, wow, okay. And the Lord reminds me that our giving is supposed to be sacrificial and cheerful. And most of the time it's really cheerful. But then when I look at that percentage or that number on a year basis, I go, holy smokes, that's why we don't have a boat. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, we were in church one day. I'll never forget it. It was, I don't know, 10 years ago. And 
I do the finances in our house and I had I'd written the tide check. We used to like write a physical check and give it at the church because it felt like we were actually doing something. And they used to pass a plate, the whole thing. So I handed it to Eric and he went to put it in the plate and he opened it up and he was like, he leaned over and whispered, this is why we don't have a boat. I said, yep, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so full disclosure, we have a small boat now that we play on the lake on, but yeah, it's why we don't have lots of things, but we're so happy about it. Yeah, that's awesome. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out for anybody who wants to learn more about generous giving. We actually did have Todd Harper, who you mentioned on the podcast back on episode 25. So you can check that out. And we had April Chapman, who's the current CEO of generous giving on episode 60, not too long ago. So if you want to learn any more about generous giving, just check out one of those episodes where they do a deep dive on that. So Heather, you know, I think that there's a number of listeners who are kind of on the brink of generosity. You know, they have started to hear some of these stories and they trying to find some way to kind of dip their foot in. What have you found most compelling about exploring generosity? And, you know, what would you say to somebody like that to just kind of show them what it's like on the other side? Yeah, good question. I would say just give it a go. The things that are available on the other side are joy and freedom. And it seems counterintuitive to hold all your stuff with open hands or even like flip them over and shove your stuff into the arena, shove your money into the arena, whatever it looks like, shove your time into the arena. That feels like a scarcity or a nervous making thing, but actually it brings a ton of freedom. Having less money and less stuff actually brings a lot of freedom. <laughs> I don't need a financial planner. <laughs> Sorry, Cody. I know that's your business. The financial <laughs> planners are awesome, but, and we do have financial planning, but I don't like, need to hire someone to manage my zillion dollars because we're giving it away. The first time, in fact, the first time I heard about the finish line thing, like you guys are working on, you guys have defined it in a really cool way. But the first time I heard about it was in a way of once you hit this net worth that, you know, you'll have enough money for the rest of your life and all your family needs and your medical needs and whatever, then, then you give the rest away. Like that was your finish line. And I remember learning about that and I thought, I'm never going to get there. Cause I'm going to give it all away along the way. I, <laughs> I don't want to reach $10 million or $7 million, $3 million, whatever the finish line number is. Cause we're not saving and holding it till then. And then giving it, we're going to just going to be giving it now. And so I love how you guys have defined it as kind of a number part of your income, right? How much of your income do you need to live on? And then that's your finish line and then give the rest of the way. But I got off track. Sorry. That's where we get back to joy and freedom. There's just so much freedom in not holding all of my stuff so close. And there's so much joy. I have wept more, those happy tears, as my daughter calls them, over generous acts than I have over anything else. I see people be generous with one another from time to time, and it just makes me weep. I just don't think there's anything like it. It's the best antidote to greed, to materialism, to selfishness, to a bad day. Go out and be generous. Give a kind word. Give somebody 20 bucks and see what happens. You might get a hug because someone really needed that 20 bucks and both of your days are going to be better. And we serve and worship a generous God and we are made in his image. So it makes a lot of sense to feel that connection when you really start to step into that. 
But Heather, you mentioned 1010 strategies and that you love the work that you do. Can you share what exactly it is that you are able to do through 1010 and really how it came together? Yeah, good question. So I started 1010 strategies when I was winding down that private foundation that I was working with that family on, which I mentioned before, and to enable me to work with multiple families. So I work specifically with families and businesses and some couples on helping them make an impact on the stuff they care about and get joy from their giving. Impact and joy, impact and joy. Those are the things I talk about all the time. They're the things I care about the most. And impact and joy are tied together, right? If you know you really made an impact on more kids learning about Jesus at Sunday school in Cupertino, California, or Rwanda, and, you know, I'd, wherever their hearts are, it brings them joy. And so that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm up to. The name 1010 Strategies. So 1010 is for John 1010, where Jesus says, I have come that they would have life and have it to the full. Eric and I got married on 1010, October 10th, because that verse just feels like how we want to live. We want to have life to the full. And we want to have Jesus come and be part of our life, part of all of our life and have it to the full. And so I named it the company 1010 Strategies because I believe when our giving is done well, that both the giver and the receiver get life to the full. If someone's hungry and you make them a sandwich and give it to them, their life is going to be more full. It's going to be better. And your life is going to be more full because you got the joy of generosity. And so life to the full for the giver and the receiver. That's what we're about at 1010 Strategies. So what does your work look like on more of a daily or weekly basis now? And how exactly are you able to help families achieve you know, impact and joy, like you said? It's mm, a great question. So oftentimes when I first start working with a family, I do what I call a giving retreat. So that is a discovery process where we sit together. It can be with just a couple or multi-generational family, depending on who's involved in the giving. And we sit together and talk about who are you? What do you care about? What's God put on your heart? And we do mission and vision and values. That stuff that's kind of boring, but really great guideposts for our lives or for our giving. And then we set focus areas, both geographically and cause areas that people care about and kind of boil it all down into those things. We write it all in one page, plus a whole bunch of other great stuff that guides their giving. That's kind of guardrails for their giving. And then that's our guide for how we're going to do everything walking forward. We revisit them and change them as things change and life changes. But that's one of the first things I do with families and then, or businesses too. We've done corporate giving strategies. And then when, if the family or the business has someone to shepherd that going forward and do the giving and all of that, then I sort of pat them on the butt and send them on their way and <laughs> stick around as their coach. And they can call me anytime and say, can you look at this thing or this got confusing or whatever it is. And so I'm just available to coach them because they've got someone in-house to do the granting and that kind of stuff going forward. But some of my clients don't have that person because everyone in the family is busy or the business has, you know, people doing other things like businesses do. And so then they'll hire me to be their ongoing giving director or philanthropy advisor. And what that looks like for the clients that I have right now is, like a part, 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 part-time executive director of someone's giving. Some of my clients have family foundations or private foundations. Some of them are giving out of donor advice funds. And 
they're all giving enough that they want some expertise. They want someone kind of minding the giving store because they don't have someone at the office or in the family to do it. They want someone doing good due diligence, that kind of thing, but they're not giving enough where they want someone full-time or they just don't want to devote so much of their giving money to someone full-time, right? Cause they want to do part of it or they just don't want to spend so much money on staffing because they'd rather give that money away. And so I fit that sort of happy medium for people where I bring all of my expertise to the table, but they only get me part, part, part time. And that's what they need. And so it's a real blessing to serve families where they're at. And then I mix five or six or seven together into a job. And I love that. I work about 30 hours a week. So I get to get my little girl when she gets off the bus every day. And I feel like I have a work-life balance that is wonderful. And I'm doing work that I absolutely love. So my week looks like kind of keeping all those plates spinning for all my clients. And the way God works it out, it's amazing. Some months a client will need way more hours because we're having a board meeting or there's an event that we're putting together or whatever. And then other months that same client won't need any hours. And so God seems to work it out where I never have months that are totally, totally nuts. And I never have months that are totally, totally slow. And it just works out. So it's been a blessing to serve these families. I get to see them get greater joy because they're making more impact now. I think all my clients would tell you, we feel more confident in our giving now because Heather's found organizations that fit whatever focus area or we were given to these ones before. She looked at that and was like, mm, that one's not very good, but this one over here is better and that kind of thing. And so they feel confident. I always want to, the thing I want to help them do is to say yes or no to a donation with confidence because they know, they know what they focus on. They know where they want to give and they're clear about that. And so then they can say yes with confidence and say no with confidence. Are there any specific stories that come to mind that just really demonstrate the impact of the work that you get to do with families or even a relationship that you had with a family that had a impact on you? Mm, that's a great question. I think almost all my clients have an impact on me because it's a real blessing to get into this interior place in their lives where we're talking about money, which is a close to the vest thing for people. And we're talking about how they want to impact the world or their community or their family or whatever. And I get to help do that. couple stories. I'll tell you a story that was one of my first stories, this isn't about 1010 strategies. This is from the Gates Foundation. It was my first year of the Gates Foundation, but it formed me in my thinking about philanthropy and the way it can really make a difference in people's lives. So I'm eight months into the job. It's September, 2004. The Gates Foundation at that time was looking at AIDS spreading around the world and the prevalence of AIDS going up and Southern Africa was you know, it was going up high, but then the prevalence rate in India was really starting to rise because India is second only in the world to China as far as population goes. Even a small percentage of the population having HIV is a huge number of people. So the Gates Foundation said, we're going to see if we can try and stem that tide in India so it doesn't become the next Southern Africa. So Bill Gates Sr. and I are headed to India. I've never been to the developing world at that point. <laughs> so this is my first experience with that. We were in big cities, but also in slums around cities and parts, you know, rural parts. And it was a really fascinating trip, but 
what we were going to do there is with staff on the ground there. And they were saying the people that are spreading HIV are the sex workers and the truckers. And so that's who we got to try and get to and see if we can kind of stem this tide. So I was like, okay, so I learned that we're going to India. So this is a new experience for me. And we're going to meet with sex workers every day. And I was like, that's a new experience for me too. (laughs) And so I had a lot to learn about what's happening there with sex work, et cetera. But Anyway, we're there. I learned all this stuff before I went. I learned a lot before I went. I learned a lot of things on the ground every day. And we were in Kamatipura, which is in the center of Mumbai. At that time, it was the largest red light district in the world. And we are surrounded by brothels. And we're meeting with the women and the madams and brothel owners and lots of people about this whole sex industry and how can we help prevent HIV. I mean, you'd love to prevent the whole sex industry, but we weren't going to dismantle that. very quickly. So we said, how do we at least help keep these women from getting this deadly disease? So we met with lots of people, but we ended up at this place that was a day center for kids. And so the kids whose moms are working in sex work, who are in the brothels, the kids need to have a place to go while their moms were working. And so there was this center where the kids could come and they they did some education and they did some fun programs for kids so that the kids had something better for their lives. And so we got to go to the center in the middle of Kamatipura and the kids did this dance for us. And we knew we were going to see kids. So we brought them treats and stuff like that. So I'm sitting next to Bogate senior as these kids are dancing and they finish. And the oldest boy in this dance group, I can still picture him in my mind. He walked up to us and he must've figured out who we were I don't know. Like, I don't know if he knew that we were Gates people. I don't know. But he walked up to us and he said, can you please help us? The boys have no place to sleep. And we asked him a question and it turns out that this center that we were at during the day, the girls, the daughters of the sex workers could stay there at night while their moms were working in the brothels. So these girls could be safe and not get victimized themselves. And that was great for these girls. So they had a safe place to go. The center workers would stay there overnight with the girls. And then the boys could come during the day, but the boys had nowhere to go at night. And that made them, some of them were getting victimized. And then some of them were getting used by traffickers and madams to do errands. It was just a bad scene for them. And they couldn't be in the brothels with their moms. And so they needed a place. And so it got under my skin. And I was like, these little boys need to be safe. This is a problem. And the boy that talked to us was probably 12 and he was definitely the oldest. And so we got back from our trip, contacted the organization that had the place for the girls and said, Hey, can you find another place? And can we hire a staff person or whatever so that there's a place for the boys? They figured it out. They found another place in Kamati Burra. So in the red light district. So the boys didn't have to go far, which was great. And we made a grant. The Gates Foundation made a grant. This is one of the grants I worked on. It's probably the smallest grant they've ever made ever. (laughs) The cost of this thing was $6,000 a year. And we funded it for two years to basically rent the place and have a staff person there. Super cheap. And so we funded that. And I wept when we made that grant because I knew the little boys were going to be safe tonight because there's a place. And it was so little money in the grand scheme of things, like it's just not very much money in the whole world. And that was bringing safety for these boys across the world that I was never going to see again, but it got under my skin. I was like, that's impact. And it might impact a dozen kids a year, but they're now safe. 
and they're not going to get sold for six and all of the things. And I thought, this is really like, it just got on our, this is the kind of impact you can make. And it wasn't even like big Gates Foundation kind of money. It was little Gates Foundation money and we made an impact and it just changed me. It showed me how much I got to be in my own little small way, this instrument for noble purposes for these boys in the world. So that's a story from back then that just showed me like how much philanthropy can make an impact. That leads me to a story from yesterday for how I get to help my clients make an impact. Now, one of my clients is in Southern California and they wanted to fund this church plant in South LA. So kind of the Nickerson Heights, I think is the name of the neighborhood. I have that wrong. I know it, but it's sort of in between Watson Compton. It's tough part of the city. We'll just say. And there was a pastor who left his thriving church because he felt like God called him to plant a church there and to draw together. It's a part of the city that has African-American population and also a large Hispanic population. There's a couple of high schools there and they're rivals. And he wanted to bring those populations together in the name of the Lord and have them not, you know, fight each other, but like come together. And so he's going to plant this church and my clients want to fund it. So we decided to fund it last year just because they knew him and trusted him and they liked the church that he'd done before and he's helped plan a lot of churches. So he was the right guy. And so I got to talk to him yesterday. It's now a year later. We made a grant a year ago. It's a year later. So I got to talk to him and say, how's it going? And I had sent him this reporting template that I have to say, here's the questions we want to know. Here's the things I want to talk about with you in our call tomorrow. Cause we want to make sure, you know, learn about the impactor also learn about the challenges you're having. And so we had this great conversation Things are going really amazing. He told me about a guy who's a barber. He runs the African-American barbershop down the street from where they planted this church. And he's like, if you get that guy, because barbershops are like churches, he said. If you get that guy, then you get all the people that come to the barbershop. So I went, got my hair cut, talked to that guy. He came to church and he hasn't been to church since he was a little kid. And he said it was this amazing experience. And he brought his girlfriend. And anyway, the church is going great. But the thing that this pastor said to me at the end of our call yesterday, he said, Hey, Heather, I want to thank you for the way you guys ask good questions. Because your questions really prompted me to think back over the last year and to think about what happened and where were we a year ago and where are we now and what have our victories been and what have our challenges been and what are some of the impacts we've made and where did we think we were going to make an impact, but we missed and what are some of the stories that are coming out of this church? And he said, your questions were so helpful for me. And so I just really want to thank you for your questions and keep asking them because it's making us better in how we talk about what we're doing. And it was really fun to reflect on the last year. It's fun to see that full circle. And I'm sure that there are hundreds of stories in between those two. Yes. And yes. I wish we had hours to just break down all the different stuff you get to see on probably a daily basis. Kind of branching off of that, I'd love to hear how you approach due diligence for either a ministry or charity or some you know, cause that one of your businesses or families is looking at, but also on a more personal level. If you have any advice for, you know, somebody just within their own family on a much smaller scale, what kinds of things from your experience can make, you know, a small difference in the kind of ways that they look at the possibilities of how they might give or spend, you know, that money that they're trying to have an impact with? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I can't tell you is the answer because if I told you, then people would never hire me. (laughs) It's my secret sauce, Keelan. Come on. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) There's lots of ways to do due diligence. You know, there's lots of things you can learn on the internet, obviously. And you can look at some of the sites out there like GuideStar and Charity Navigator. I find those ratings marginal at best. Excellence in Giving is a great philanthropic advisory firm out of Colorado Springs. And they do these things called analytical overviews. And you can subscribe to their service and have them do an analytical overview of any charity you want, which is a pretty cool thing. And they have really smart people there that assess the charity. They look at, I don't know, some hundred and some metrics for the charity. And then they give you this report. And it's really short reports, not forever. And it'll help you in kind of two pages get a really good sense of what's going on there. So those are helpful. I sometimes look into their database if I have an organization that I'm looking at and wondering about. This is this is what consultants always say, but it is a little bit part of the secret sauce in the sense that I don't have very many tricks. Like I have a two-trick pony, but one of the tricks that God gave me is that I have what I call a really good sniffer. Some people might call it discernment if you were really holy, but I just call it a good sniffer. <laughs> and I feel like with the training I've had with my work at the state of Washington, I was a fiscal analyst then. It's sort of what I'm doing now in some ways. I can look at a funding request and smell straight through that thing. And I can know in a short amount of time if these guys are telling me the truth or not, if they are really going to get this done with the money or not. If we gave them twice as much money, could they do 10 times as much work? Like, I feel like I just got a good sniffer and God helps me see through all the stuff. And you can call it a gut feeling, you can call it whatever. And so I trust that because it's been right (laughs) a lot. So it's the Lord giving me little bits of wisdom, I guess, maybe through my nose, my sniffer. (laughs) But that sounds kind of random, but that's sort of how I do it, right? I look at all these resources. The other thing we do in the field is... I know lots of people across the philanthropy field from my time at Gates because I worked as the ED of a private foundation. Like I had connections with directors of private foundations all across the country and we rely on each other from time to time. If I have a family that comes to me and says, Hey, I really want to support organizations that are working with girls in Afghanistan. I haven't done that before. I don't know who those organizations are, but I know who does. And so I call a couple colleagues in the field who have worked in that space a while and said, who are your best orgs working in Afghanistan specifically for girls? And they'll give me three or four organizations. I'll go look at them, pick the ones that I think fit this client particularly well, reach out, you know, learn about the organizations, of course, too, and then present those to my clients. And so it's this great network that we can rely on each other in in our sort of shared due diligence. And that's a blessing. Heather, last time we talked, you started to tell me a little bit about the power of a $20 bill. And I was hoping you could just share a little bit more about that. Yeah, I would be happy to. So this comes back to Keelan's question about like, if you're thinking about giving, just start give away 20 bucks is kind of the answer to that question. So the $20 giving started because in 2017, I got selected as a quote, woman to watch. There's this cool local business magazine out here and they create this event every year called Women to Watch. And they pick five or six women and that are, you're supposed to be watching apparently. And they put them on stage and you get to give kind of a TED talk about why you're a woman to watch, like what's cool about you. And I went to the first one. It was super inspiring, actually. I thought I'll either leave this event feeling 
really crummy about my life because there's all these amazing women and I'm not amazing or I'll feel really inspired. And I felt really inspired. So in the second year, they asked me to be one of the women to watch. And I said, okay. And with the intent of really wanting to inspire people, but I struggled with what to talk about because I don't want people watching me. I'm really clear about that. I want people's eyes on the King, not on me. And so I was like, Lord, and I just asked him over and over, what am I supposed to talk about? What am I supposed to talk about? Well, I was at a generous giving retreat in some quiet prayer time. And the Lord told me finally, it was like a month before the event. And I was getting kind of nervous that I didn't have my talk prepared. And God said, I really want you to talk about generosity. And that shouldn't have been a surprise to me. Like you hear me talking about it now. This is kind of my jam, but yeah, it was a surprise to me then. And so I was sitting in this time with the Lord thinking about what would I share about generosity and what would be inspiring to people, just kind of everyday people that come to this event people that aren't my clients, right? Giving away 10 or $25,000 at a time, but people that are going to give away 25 bucks or a hundred bucks, like what would be inspiring to them? And I thought of that study that got done with a bunch of college kids. And in one college class, it was like a social science study. They gave half the class 20 bucks to give away and then half the class 20 bucks to spend on themselves. It was like a Monday. And by Friday, they were supposed to have done it. And then they did some assessments to gauge the student's happiness. And to a person, they got more joy from generosity than consumption. And I don't know about you, but in college, I was poor. (laughs) And that 20 (laughs) bucks would have gone a long way in buying groceries that week. But these students gave it away and they got more joy from that. Interesting. So I was thinking about that and some other studies I know about. And I was like, well, that's what I'll talk about that day. And at the end of the talk, I'll give them like, here's three fun ideas for ways to be generous, right? Buy the guy's coffee who's in line behind you in the Starbucks drive-thru or, you know, give away some clothes that someone else would wear more than you would wear, things like that. And so I'm kind of closing up this prayer time with the Lord and thinking through these small examples. And then this is what I felt like the Lord said to me, why don't you just give him 20 bucks? And I said, what? <laughs> and he said it again, why don't you just give him 20 bucks? And I was like, all the people there? <laughs> so then I quicked at the math. There are 400 seats in this performing arts center where this event was going to be held. And I was like, that's an $8,000 generosity caper. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And Eric and I always, we plan a bunch of our giving, but then we always leave some in this kind of spontaneous generosity pool to be given away. And that year that would have taken most of our money. And this is February of the year. And so I was like, man, then it will be all gone. We won't get to do that for the rest of the year. But I was like, okay, Lord, if that's what you want me to do, like we're in, I needed to ask Eric, of course, if he was up for this $8,000 paper. (laughs) But then I felt like God said, invite some other people in. And I said, who? And he gave me two names. So I called them both the next day. And I told them the story I just told you and said, zero pressure. But if you guys went in on this thing, like, come on in. And they both said yes. And then another friend said yes along the way. So my little band of generous friends put in four grand. Eric and I put in four grand. NCF, National Christian Foundation, helped us. They have this generosity catalyst fund here in Seattle. And I was like, that's helpful. So, and they're like, this is going to be a generosity catalyst. We can use that. So we all put our money into that fund to get our tax deduction. That seemed like a small blessing even though I don't think tax deductions matter to God. (laughs) We got one for that money, which was fun. And then I went to the bank with the NCF staff and we got out $8,000 worth of $20 bills. 
to give away at this event. And so then I clipped a little card to him. I created this email address. I gave my 20 at gmail.com because I wanted people to be able to share their stories of giving their 20. So I went up to the venue. They were going to get, you know, put all the twenties and all the bags for that night, et cetera, et cetera. So I get on stage. I'm the first speaker. I am shaking with excitement. I had so much joy about this thing and I didn't tell anyone. Eric knew. And then my little, my band of generous friends knew, but I didn't tell anyone else because I had friends coming to the event and I didn't want to spoil this fun surprise, but I was literally shaking on stage because I was so excited (laughs) to do this. And so I get to the end of the talk, giving them these ideas of how to be generous. And then I said, but first I felt like I was supposed to be generous with you. So tonight in your goodie bags, when you leave tonight, there's a $20 bill. And like those college students, like the $20 isn't for you. It's for you to give away. And I don't care where you give it. If you have a friend who really is having a hard day and you want to buy him a pedicure or a glass of wine or like use it however you want. If you want to give it to the homeless guy outside, however you want, laissez-faire, you do it. But it's for you to give away because I want you to experience the joy of generosity. And if you feel compelled to share your story, here's an email address. I gave my 20 at gmail.com. Send me your story. So within days, I was starting to get stories. It was, well, first I'll say like there was this kind of gasp in the room. (laughs) People are like, she's giving us 20 bucks. And then they clapped, which I'm on stage while they're clapping. And I was like, this is God's money. And it was really awkward for me, (laughs) (laughs) man. But I was excited and I started getting stories in the following days. And the impact that it was having on the givers was unreal. Because when you give someone $20 cash, you have to meet them. You have to be close enough to them to give them the money. And people were meeting across socioeconomic lines and across racial lines and across geographic boundaries in cities to give this money. And it was changing the givers and the recipients, we hope, but it was changing the givers to be close enough to another human where they felt the nudge to give their 20 bucks away. I kind of told them like, pay attention to the nudge. That's what we always say when you're going to do a generosity caper, like pay attention to the nudge. And then whenever the Holy Spirit says, go, you just do it. (laughs) The stories were transformational. In almost every story, there was tears, both people crying, recipient and giver crying for 20 bucks come on. And so then I'm getting the stories. I was sharing them with my band of generous friends and we were weeping. And it was just this most fun generosity caper that I think I've ever done. And what happened in that, this is the thing I learned about it or realized about it is that this thing God revealed, you can leverage joy or multiply joy because usually in the generosity equation, there's a giver and a receiver. There's two people. And like I said earlier, if our giving's done well, I think both get joy, both get life to the full. In this equation, there was three people. The first was me and my band of generous friends, the first giver who gave to another giver who then gave to the recipient. It's the same 20 bucks. The money didn't grow, but the joy grew because all three parties got joy for the same 20 bucks. It was amazing. Stories were amazing. One of the stories I got, this woman said, I still haven't given away your $20 bill. It was like five months later or something. I still haven't given away your $20 bill because it's still in my wallet. It still has the card clipped to it because I want to remember that that's not my money. It's your money and I want to give it away. But she said, in the meantime, I've given away a whole bunch of my money. 
but I keep that one because I want to keep remembering, like keep giving. And she said, I have no idea how much money I've given, but it's way more than $20. And she shared parts of some of the people who she's given it to people in the grocery store line, all kinds of different folks. She said, sometimes it's $5, sometimes it's $50, but I keep your 20 as a reminder. And generosity is changing her. And then it keeps changing me. So I was learning from them. All these different people that were giving their $20 away, I was learning from them. So it's a really, it was a really incredible thing. I'll say one last story about it. There was a woman who got 20 bucks that night. She's become a friend. I met her like for real a couple years later. And she decided that with that $20, she was going to start a nonprofit to support women, specifically black women, but black and white women coming together to support each other. Instead of thinking we're so different and we need to stay in our separate camps, she wanted women to come together. And so she, with her 20 bucks, like paid part of the filing fee to get her nonprofit started for this cause of women coming together. Since then, lots of things have been happening. She wrote a book. I've been kind of just befriending her through things. And now we're working on this crazy thing together where I think we're going to go to Ghana and help some Liberian refugees. She's Liberian, this woman. Help some Liberian refugees in Ghana together because of 20 bucks in 2017. What? Only God could do stuff like that. Liberian refugees. Who knew that 20 bucks would lead me to Ghana? I haven't been to Ghana. I've been to lots of parts of Africa, but not Ghana. So my $20 Tatika is going to end up with both of us in Ghana. Amazing what God does. I would have loved to have seen the face of the person at the front desk of the hotel when you handed them $8,000 in 20s. (laughs) 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 But that's such an incredible investment in God's economy because you and your friends took $8,000, which is a lot of money, but at the same time, it's not that much money, and planted 400 seeds, which then all the recipients were also involved. So there's 800 generosity seeds that were planted that are now yielding fruit that you get to hear about, which is so amazing because so often we don't really know the full impact of an act of generosity. We might get a small glimpse, but we created a mechanism, a feedback mechanism for that act of generosity. And I love those stories and I hope you continue to get them in the future. Well, think about it, Cody. Like I put $4,000 in that pool, which is a lot of money, but not a lot of money. Like you said, like what better use for my $4,000 than to seed fund a whole bunch of generosity and to change a whole pile of people's hearts. I can't think of a better, what would I do with that $4,000 that would be better? I can't think of anything. That's where generosity brings joy and freedom. Well, Heather, how can people learn more about 1010 Strategies and some of the work that you're doing? There's a website, 1010strategies.com. So you can find us there. I have another guy who works with me who works with givers in the Midwest and we serve givers all over the country and happy to chat about your generosity portfolio if that's something you want to chat about. I think... The other ways to continue to learn in your giving journey, I would say get plugged in with Generous Giving if you can. They have an annual conference once a year. That's what I went to in 2005 that really started me on this trajectory that's changed my life. And keep asking the owner what he wants you to do with the stuff he's entrusted to you. He, you know, 2 Corinthians 9 says that he provides seed to the sower. 
and bread for food. So he's giving you your seed, your jobs to sow it. He's also going to give you bread so that you get to eat along the way. He's never going to leave us behind if we give away the stuff that he's given us. He doesn't leave us hungry. I think that passage is trying to enforce that. But even though we're giving away his stuff, we get to keep the joy. And he wants us to keep the joy. And so keep asking the owner what he wants you to do with your stuff. And then just wait for the joy. You can expect it. (laughs) Joy and generosity go together. So people can lean into that, lean into the strategic side, attention strategies. There's a great book. If you want more joy in your generosity, because you feel like you've gotten too strategic, there's a great book called I Like Giving by my friend Brad Formsma. It's full of fun generosity stories. And they're not all about money. I've been reading them to my daughter at night because she loves these giving stories and Brad always says, and I always say, like, I think that my favorite way to be generous these days is just to, I carry cash all the time so that I'm always ready in a moment's notice to give someone 20 bucks or a hundred bucks or whatever. And to pay attention, wake up each day, ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want me to be generous today? And you might be in the sandwich shop and he's like, give that 19 year old high school kid a generous word. He's having a rough day, right? Or the grocery store checkout line or the flight that you're getting on or whatever. Somebody always needs a kind word. You can be generous in that way. Be generous with a touch. Sometimes if somebody needs a hug or whatever, there's so many ways to be generous. And so ask the Lord, I'm starting to actually try and do it every morning. Lord, where do you want me to be generous today? Help me to not miss it. I want to see it. And then when you get the nudge, lean in. Every time I respond to the nudge, I'm glad I did. Even if I don't know the outcome, One time God said, I want you to give, I was at a luncheon thing and there were these wait staff and there's one guy that looks like he was having kind of a hard day. And so that God was like, I want you to give him 20 bucks. So I was like, all right, because I've learned to say yes. Because when I ignore it, I always regret it. (laughs) And so I've learned to say yes. So it was at the end of the time I was talking to some people and then I was about to leave and I remembered, oh gosh, I'm supposed to give that guy 20 bucks. So I walked back in there and the guy's talking with some of his other servers and they're laughing and having this great time. I thought, maybe he's not having a hard day. Maybe I'm not supposed to give him 20 bucks. But I felt like the Lord said, give him 20 bucks. I was like, okay. (laughs) So I went and I said, I don't know why I'm supposed to give this to you, but Jesus thinks you're awesome. And here's 20 bucks. And he stopped, he paused, and he was like, thank you so much. And then that was it. I don't know why I was supposed to do that, but I felt good about responding to the nudge and it blessed him. It blessed me. I got joy and I went away. So ask the Lord and respond to the nudge. Ask the Lord and respond to the nudge. So Heather, you've learned and grown so much through all these experiences God has brought you through. I'd love to hear how he's continuing to stretch and move in you in the area of giving and generosity today. That's a really good question, Keelan. I want to keep growing. I I think part of the reason I stick around generous giving is because I keep meeting people that are, this is going to sound bad, but are more generous than me. Not because I'm some hero or anything, but like I keep meeting people that have done crazier generosity things than me or given away a lot more money than I could ever imagine. And I am so inspired by that and I'm pushed by it. And so what I want to be doing in my life is staying close to people that push me on my own generosity journey. Eric, sometimes my husband often wants to do something more generous than I do. Like he's, we'll have something come up and he'd be like, how much do you think we should give him? And I'd be like 250 bucks. He was like, well, I was thinking 500. 
And so it like draws me forward. I'm like, okay. And we have this new policy in our house that whoever picks the higher number wins because we just want to be generous, right? So, okay, whatever the higher number is, so that pushes me forward. And so I keep wanting to be leaning into being generous in different ways. I also want to keep leaning into this kind of leveraging or multiplying the joy thing. Where can I be giving to givers that then give to receivers so that the joy gets from all three, but it's the same 20 bucks or same whatever, so that more people get to experience the joy of generosity. It's happening. I got to talk about it at a conference once and other people started doing that. They give people in their company a hundred dollars at Christmas time for them to give away and things like that. And so this multiplying the joy thing has me really intrigued. Like what's God doing with that? And I want to keep leaning into opportunities like that. So maybe we should have sent all your listeners 20 bucks. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that before now. <laughs> I don't That'd know be an incredible listening feat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Since they're listeners. Well, Heather, as we get to the end of this episode, we want to wrap up with our manager's minute. We just end every episode with a practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. So do you have any suggestions for our listeners today? I do. So as you're thinking about your giving and planning out where you want to give it or how much you want to give in the year, my encouragement is to plan only 80 or 90% of it. Like there's organizations you want to support causes you care about. I believe in strategic philanthropy. It's my training. I believe in it. That's how we move the needle and make an impact, but don't get strategic with all of it. Leave a pool, create an extra checking account or an extra donor advice fund or what probably not donor advice fund. Cause some of it you'll do without a tax deduction. You'll just give cash away, but create an extra account that you put some money in seed funded at the start of the year. 10 or 20% of your giving money and then wait and ask the Lord when or where am I supposed to give it? And then just respond to the nudge and give freely out of that extra 10 or 20%. And then I think you'll have, you'll have an impact with your strategic stuff. You'll have a ton of joy and freedom from the other stuff. And it makes for a really great giving portfolio and a really full life to the full kind of life. That's a great idea. And my wife and I do that exact strategy for that exact reason of just being able to experience that joy and prompting. And so I will double down that recommendation. Thanks so much for being with us, Heather. This has been fantastic. And we're so grateful for just being able to hear all the ways that God has worked in you and through you and for all the lives that you have been able to inspire on in world of generosity. Thanks, Kaylin. Thanks, Cody. It's fun to talk with other people that are on this journey too. You guys are on your own journeys. We're all on our own journeys. It's so important to be encouraged along the way to be pushed by others, but also encouraged and drawn forward. And the stories really help us think of new ways to be generous and new ways to lean into what God's calling us to. He was generous with us. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So let's share what we have. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you've heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. 
If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 70. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. <music>